Well, if you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans 12 today, but we're going to start with 1 Corinthians 12. So if you want to put your finger in Romans 12 and flip over to 1 Corinthians 12, I'm also going to be reading from the New Living Translation a lot today. Uh, <clears throat> but there's this... Um, there's a book that was written a couple years ago. It's a World War II biography. It's called Unbroken. Has anybody read this book before? I read it. It's by Lauren Hillenbrand. And it's about a former Olympian, Louis Zamperini, who was drafted into World War II. And he survived a plane crash in the Pacific Ocean. And he survived 47 days drifting on a raft. He also survived over two and a half years as a prisoner of war in a Japanese POW camp. And in this book, they recount this, this incident that happens after his plane crashes and he's drifting in the ocean. There's three men that survived the plane crash. It was Louis Samperini, he had a friend named Phil, and there was a third man named Mac. And all three of them are on this raft for 47 days. All the while, they're being pestered by sharks that are swimming around their raft. And... Um, there's a moment in this book where this Japanese plane is flying overhead, and he, he sees this raft, and he turns around, and he comes, and he starts peppering bullet holes all over this raft, and they hop out of the raft, and they're fighting off sharks, and they get back on the raft, and they discover that there's holes all over the raft, and it begins to sink, and so these men, they jump into action. Lewis grabs a kit that is in the raft, and he starts to patch the holes, the bullet holes that is all over the raft. Phil grabs the pump that was in this kit, and he begins to reinflate the raft. He's pumping air back into this raft. And Mac grabs an oar, and he starts beating off the sharks that are trying to get at his friends who are patching the holes and trying to pump up the raft. And so uh, Louis Samperini recounted this incident. He, 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 um, he commented on this incident that had happened, and he said, if all three men had not played their part... They would have surely died that day. If all three men were actively involved in doing what they knew they had to do to survive, they would have surely died that day. Well, I want to talk this morning about this mosaic of people called the Church of Jesus and that each of us are uniquely gifted and play an, an important and special role in the church of Jesus Christ. There is a role that you bring. There is something that you bring to the church of Jesus that nobody else brings. It, you alone have these gifts. You alone have what you contribute to the body of Christ. But how often do we spend our lives trying to uh, be like somebody else? We see a more, in our, in our culture, we think of it as a more prestigious gift or a more honorable gift. And so we, we try to make our lives look like somebody else and we try to model our lives after somebody else. But Jesus wants you to stay in your lane. He wants you to understand the gifts that he's given you, the uniqueness that he's given you so that you can contribute to the body of Christ and the body of Christ can be whole. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says this, <clears throat> starting in verse 18, but in fact God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. And verse 27 says this, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Last Sunday, we talked about how Jesus prayed for unity in the church. In John, John chapter 17, we see one of the very last prayers that Jesus prays before going to the cross. And he gathers his disciples around and he prays over his disciples for their protection and that God would be with them as they further the gospel. And then uh, he goes on to pray for the believers that would come to know him, the future church. And of all, out of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for, 
He could have prayed for faith, that God would give his church faith. He could have prayed for courage, that they would be filled with courage as they continue to to share the gospel. He could have prayed for their health and their well-being, but Jesus doesn't pray for any of these things. And as one of his final prayers before going to the cross, he gathers his disciples around, he prays for his church, and he prays that that they would be one. He prays for the unity of the church. That the church would be one as the Father is one with Jesus. And if you missed last week's message, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Because today is really part two of that message. Last week we talked about how the church is better together. That we are supposed to be a unified church. And today we're talking about uh, how the church values diversity. That we are supposed to be a, a church, a body of people that value diversity. The reality is that we need each other to complete the assignment that Jesus left for us, to make disciples of all nations. But if I'm honest with you, I think of how often I wish people were more like me. Am I the only one who thinks this way? All right? I wish my wife, I wish she thought just a little bit more like me. We would get along a lot better. I wish people that I led, people that I, I did life with, I wish they thought and behaved a little bit more like me because then the world would be a better place, right? (laughs) Am I the only one who's thought this? Come on, be honest. Raise your hands. Come on. No, you're the only one, Pastor. Thank you. No, but the truth is is that you bring something that I need. You have something that I need. The differences that we have, Maybe even some of the disagreements that we have, despite all those things, you bring something to the body of Christ that I need. And Jesus made it that way. God wants to use the people to your right and to your left to sharpen you, to care for you, to keep you on the right path. And if you're watching online, God wants to, to use the people in the body of Christ that you're connected to, to sharpen you and to care for you. The church has every tool that you need. Talked about this last week that, you know, it was like Jesus was thinking, you know, out of all the things he could have prayed for, it's like Jesus was thinking, if my church could just come together, they would have everything they need. They would encourage each other. They would sharpen each other. They'd keep each other on the right path. They could pray for each other. They would be healed. They could help care for one another, provide for one another. If my church was one, then they would have everything they need. They would be taken care of. Now, this is countercultural. In our age, we live in this age of deconstruction, and there's a lot of people uh, in our culture, in our world today, a lot of millennials about my age who are deconstructing their faith, and they're, they're asking questions, and they're wondering if they're on the right path and if they believe the right things. And it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to question. It's okay to want to know the root, to want to get to the, the source of it all. But we live in this age of deconstruction, and a lot of people, especially millennials my age, would say that I don't need the church to have a relationship with God. I don't need the body of Christ to have a relationship with Jesus because Jesus is all I need. So if I stay home alone and I isolate, I can do just as well without the body of Christ. I love Jesus, but I don't like his church. That would be like walking up to a man and saying, you know what? I really like you, but I really hate your wife. I really like you. You're, you're good. You're a good person. But your wife is just terrible. She's, she's a hypocrite. She's disgusting. She's, she, she, she hurts my feelings all the time. I like you, but I don't like your wife. Come on, how many of you know, if you said that to me, 
we're not going to be able to have a very good relationship, right? Because my wife is my better half, all right? And that's not true in the body of Christ. Jesus is the, is the better half uh, out of all of us. But, but, but how many of you know that if you said that to a husband, you're going to have issues, right? That we are created to care for one another, and the body of Christ actually brings us closer to Jesus. We need to utilize it. We need to take advantage of coming together. There is a key to unlocking the gifts that you have for my life. The gifts that the people sitting around you have, they have gifts. They have, they have things that, that you need for your life, but there's a key to unlocking those gifts in your life. And we're going to discover this gift together. <clears throat> All right, Romans chapter 12. Turn with me there. In this passage, Paul is writing to the Roman church, and in the first 11 chapters of Romans, he's really uh, explaining to the Roman church what it is that they should believe. And he's laying the foundations of our faith. He writes about um, that all people fall short of sin. And he goes on to say that Christ died to forgive sins and that we are made right with God through faith. It's what to believe. In chapters 1 through 11, he's laying the foundations of our faith. And in chapter 12, however, Paul makes a shift. And he starts not to talk about this is what you should believe, but he starts to talk about this is how you should behave as the body of Christ, as people following God. He switches gears from a theological explanation to practical instruction. He be, it's almost as if he's saying, all right, I've just given you the blueprints in the first 11 chapter, but now here's the hammer and the nails so you can go get to work. You can live this out practically as the body of Christ. So Romans chapter 12, we're going to start with verse 4 and go through verse 10. It says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one, uh, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the ESV, by the way. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And verse 10 is where I want to land for the rest of our time together. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The key to unlocking the gifts and the tools that other people have for your life is honor. It's honoring one another. What is honor? And what does honor have to do with church unity? Well, let's think about, back to the, to, uh, to the first century Romans. Uh, the Romans had a very different idea of honor. <clears throat> for the Roman man, you weren't worthy of honor until somebody informed you that you were worthy of honor. It... As a Roman citizen, you were never your own judge, but you would look at yourself through the eyes or through the lens of other people. There was a confirmation that was required for you to determine your identity and your worth. And this, this, goes, this is beyond uh, modern-day psychology, and, and Romans didn't always analyze their thoughts and feelings like we do today. But a Roman wouldn't call himself a good man unless somebody else called him a good man first. Your worth, your honor, your value was determined by somebody else confirming that in your life. You weren't worthy of honor unless somebody else said that you were. Now, can you imagine 
If your worth, if your value is, is determined and your identity is in what other people perceive of you, can you imagine the boasting and the blatant bragging that would be happening in the Roman culture because you want everybody to see what you've done? You want everybody to see all the good works and all the good deeds that you've done so you'd be bragging and boasting because you want other people to recognize that you're worthy of honor. The typical citizen raised in Rome was very selfish, was very prideful. I would argue that there's still some of that that's happening today. Our culture has adopted the similar mindset. We want people to see our accomplishments. So we post things on social media or we, we tell people, you know, of our accomplishments or our good deeds. We want people to recognize how much we're worth, and so we get our identity from what other people think about us. So when other people don't like us, what happens? It all falls apart, doesn't it? Our identity, our worth, our value, when people say that we're not worthy, when they start talking bad about us behind our backs, our identity completely falls apart. But Scripture's definition of honor is different. And when we look in the New Testament, in the Greek, there's multiple uh, translations for the word honor in the Greek. And so we're going to talk about two of them today. The first word that we see for honor in the Greek, we see this in Luke chapter 14, verse 10. And it's this parable of a wedding feast where Jesus says that when you come to this feast and you're going to take a seat at the table, he says, don't go and sit at a high place. Don't go sit in a place of honor. Because if somebody more important than you walks into the room, the host is going to ask you to move down the table to a place of less honor, right? But he says this in verse 10. Can we get it up on the screen? Luke chapter 14, verse 10. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when, you, when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored. That word is doxa in the Greek in the presence of all the other guests. You will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. This word doxa is typically, when we see this word in the Bible, this word doxa means glory or praise. And it's often reserved to describe God, to, to describe honor that belongs to God. It's glory or praise that belongs to God. It's a high form of honor. It's glory. And Jesus is saying this. He's saying that if you humble yourself, then God can exalt you and give you glory and give you praise. Doxa belongs to God alone. Glory and praise belongs to God alone. But here's the cool thing about our relationship with God. Is that God gives glory. He gives doxa. He gives honor and praise to those who humble themselves because he knows that those who humble themselves, if he gives them glory, they're only going to give it back to Jesus. They're only going to give it back to God. God is looking for a people who humble themselves because he knows that he can exalt them knowing that they will only give glory back to Jesus. It's this divine relationship where God looks down from heaven and he says, stand up. You're amazing. You are incredible. Oh, I love how you're created. I love what you just did. And the person who's being glorified says, no, you're the one who gave me these gifts. It's you that should be glorified. It's you that should be praised. I just thank you so much that you've given me this opportunity. And God says, no, 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 you're amazing. I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. And the man says, no, no, God, but you're the one. You And it's this divine relationship where glory is just passed back and forth to God. God gives glory to the humble because he knows that they can be trusted with glory because it's only going to point to Jesus. 
It's only going to show the person of Jesus Christ. When the humble are glorified, they show people Jesus. That's the first word. It's doxa. The second word that we're going to spend most of our time with today is the word time. And this is an interesting word. It's an accounting term. And it means to estimate or to fix a value to something. To estimate or to fix a value or worth to something. And so in Exodus 20, the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew form of this word is seen in Exodus 20, 12, where it says, honor your father and mother. And then we see this word again in 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, show, it says husbands, show honor to your wives. And then we just saw it in Romans 12, verse 10. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. See, Paul is telling the Romans that they need to discover how much each other is worth. They need to estimate their value. They need to fix a value to each other. He's telling children, determine how much your parents are worth. Determine the value of your parents. And he's telling husbands, determine the worth of your wives. Now, we're not talking about how many camels he should have paid for her when they got married. It's a different kind of estimate, a, a different type of determining value. But he's saying that you should be uh, you should see the worth and you should determine the value that is on each other's life. Well, what are people worth? What are our parents worth? What are, what are husbands and wives worth? The, the body of Christ, what are people worth? It's interesting that Paul uses accounting terms when he talks about honoring one another and he asks Romans to determine what each other are worth. Have any of you had to ha- have had to determine what something is worth before. I think of um, my family's garage sales, and you bring all this junk out of your garage, and you lay it on a table, right? And, and after it's all laid out, now it's time to grab the sticker and the Sharpie and to go around and to assign a value to each thing, right? So you go around, and you put $5, $2, $0.50 free on the box, right? And you go, and you determine how much each other's worth, but how many of you have ever had to get rid of something with sentimental value before? Suddenly the price goes up, doesn't it? It's not really worth that much, but because there's sentimental value there, there's good memories attached to this object, the price suddenly goes up. See, in our world, in our world the worth or the value of something determines its price. Let me say it again. The worth or the value of something in our world determines its price, but that's not the way the kingdom of God works. In our culture, it's the value of something that determines the price. But in the kingdom, it's the price that Jesus paid for you that determined your worth. It's the price that Jesus paid on the cross, the shedding of his blood that determined your ultimate value, your, your, your immeasurable worth. It's the price that Jesus paid that determines our worth. Before Jesus went to the cross, We were sinners. We were filthy. We were unworthy of having a relationship with God. But then Jesus paid the price. And we became heirs to the kingdom of heaven. We became sons and daughters of the most high God. It was the price that was paid on the cross that determined how much you are worth. Now you are Righteous heirs of the kingdom, a holy nation, a royal priesthood is what the Bible says. See, Paul isn't telling the Romans to determine each other's value based on their accomplishments or their righteous deeds. He's saying to determine each other's value based on the price that was paid for them. Did God bankrupt heaven for this person? Yes, he did. Then they are valuable. 
They are worth something. Take heed of this person. Invite this person into your life. Honor this person. Assign that value to their life and see them through the lens of what Jesus paid for them. Jesus, he didn't look at us and say, well, they're not worth the cost, so I'm not going to pay that high of a price. Instead, he paid a price that gave every one of us a value beyond measure. Each one of us has been created in the image of God, and each one of us has a high price paid for us. 1 Corinthians 6.20, I love uh, where this word, this Greek word teme shows up again. It says this, for you have been bought with a price. That's the word teme, the same word. Therefore, honor teme, God, with your bodies. You have been bought with a price. You've had a value assigned to you because God himself died for you. Now you are worth an immeasurable amount. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. True honor is about acknowledging the value that God has placed on an individual. Honor isn't about whether or not someone is deserving of honor. It's not about whether or not they've done enough to please you. It's about whether or not you are choosing to be a person of honor, a person who sees others through the lens of God. It's all on your end. It's not on the other person's end. Paul is asking the Romans to outdo one another in showing honor. Now, let's look at this word outdo in Romans 12.10. The word outdo in the Greek literally means you go first. You go first. Paul is saying don't wait for the other person to start acting in a way that you feel is honorable. You go first. Show them honor. Show them the honor that they deserve because Jesus paid the price for them, you go first. You be the first one to do it. Imagine if we were a church that all went first and said, regardless of how you act and regardless of what you say to me, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to treat you in the way that Jesus wants you to be treated because he paid a price for you. Imagine if the church did that. Here's why honor is the key. Because God intentionally made you with strengths and he knew that you had weaknesses but he knew that your weaknesses would be somebody else's strengths, right? The problem is when you don't honor people, when you don't recognize the call and the gifting and the value on somebody's life, you'll dismiss them. And you'll never utilize the gifts or the strengths or the tools that you might need for your life. Let me say it this way. I heard it this week from my wife. She said this, she saw this quote, God may be trying to give you a blessing in a package that you don't want. God may be trying to give you a blessing and a package that looks like the person you can't stand. Romans 12 says that each of us have different gifts. Prophecy, ministry, teaching, encouragement, generosity, leadership, mercy. And these are only the gifts that Romans list. I need encouragement from others. I need to be shown compassion and mercy. I need prophetic words spoken over my life. And you know who's supposed to administer those things over me? It's you. It's the body of Christ. You need those things too. And you know who's supposed to administer those things over your life? It's the people to your right and to your left. But first we need to recognize the gift and the grace upon their life in order to accept those gifts. Otherwise, we'll just ignore them. We won't see the gift because it's in a package that we don't want. It's in a way that, it's in a, it's in a form that we don't want. So I have three things for the rest of our time that I want to talk about honor, kind of the importance of honor. The, the first one that I have is this. It's honor acknowledges God-given value. 
Honor sees and it, uh, it recognizes, it acknowledges God-given value. In Matthew 13, 57, it says this, A prophet is not without honor, Time, except in his hometown. And Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. It's describing when Jesus went back to his hometown, he, couldn't, he, he, he didn't do very, very many miracles in his hometown because people saw Jesus and they said, Wait, isn't that the Jesus that lived down the street? Isn't that the little boy who scraped his knee by the sea? That, he can't be the Messiah. He can't be the answer to our problems. <laughs> it's definitely not him. Because the people in, living in Jesus' hometown didn't acknowledge his God-given value, his worth. They missed out on God's blessing. They didn't expect the Messiah to look like Jesus. They didn't expect their answer to prayer to look like Jesus. How many times has God answered prayer through someone you didn't expect? I remember asking God for more patience. God, would you give me more patience? And then he throws somebody in my life who I can't stand. And God says, you want patience? You're going to learn to get it real quick if you, if you stick with this person. Oh, but God, that's not what I wanted. That's not what I meant. I wanted to wake up one morning with more patience. Right? I wanted to close my eyes and make a wish, and I just, I'm the most patient person on the earth. That's not how it works. God says, you want more patience? Let me give you somebody who's going to really bring that out of you. Most times, people have an idea of exactly how God is going to answer their prayer. And you may not know it, but God is trying to use the person that you least like. Perhaps God has put himself in each of his children. And we have to learn how to see the gold in other people. That's what honor is. Honor is saying, regardless of how you treat me, regardless of, of what you believe, and regardless of our relationship, God has made you in his image and he's placed gold he's placed greatness inside of you he has gifts in you that nobody else i know has and so i'm going to honor you because i see the god that lives inside of you i see the image that he placed on your life so come be a part of my life i honor you because of your god likeness because you were made in the image of god honor acknowledges god-given value the second one is this honor restores honor restores as I was preparing for this message, I found an old definition of the word restoration, and it's this. It's to return a king to his throne. It's such a beautiful picture of what it looks like to honor one another in the church. See, scripture says that we are a royal priesthood, that we're heirs to the kingdom of God. It's to return somebody to their throne. It's to re return that person to a place of honor if they've fallen away. A vast majority of the church has adopted this unhealthy method when dealing with people who fail, with people who walk away from the church, or maybe they're, they're going through something. They're experiencing depression, or they're struggling with addiction, or, or they're, 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 they're experiencing something that they don't typically experience. What the church has done in the past is we push them away. And we say, you can't no longer be part of this family because you fell. You're failing. So go and fix yourself before you come back to church. Go and look the part before you can sit next to me in church. But is that what Jesus did to Peter when Peter failed? When Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus took him beside the shore, and he brushed him off, and he looked at Peter and he said, do you want to try this again? Can we do this again? Let's keep going. Do you love me, Peter? Then feed my sheep. No, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. He restored Peter back to his original place. See, God still saw 
The same Peter that he said, on this rock, I will build my church. And the fact that he failed and he walked away from the, uh, and, he, and, he, and he betrayed Jesus in that moment, the fact that he did that didn't change the calling on his life, didn't change the gifts and the gold that was inside of him. Jesus still saw those things. And so Jesus' job at that point was to restore Peter and show him, listen, you fell away, but that wasn't the way, that's not what God designed for your life. Let's restore you back to your throne. Let's restore you back to your rightful place. I think there's healthy boundaries to keep when a person fails. And if the person is in a leadership position, it's probably not wise to allow them to continue in their role. However, the picture that Jesus gives us is to surround each other with support when we fall. We are here to lift each other up and to restore each other back to God's original design for our lives. It's not, this is not a competition. It's not last man standing, last woman standing. We are the church, and we are in this together. And so one of us falls, that's a member of the body of Christ, and you need that piece of the body. And our job as the church is to restore them, to honor them, to bring them back, to show them who God has created them to be. The last one is this. We talked about this last week, that the church doesn't always get along. There's conflict, right? We argue, we disagree. So this is how honor treats conflict. Honor confronts with grace. It confronts with grace. Not everyone chooses to be a person of honor. So what do you do when you're wronged by another person? How do we honor one another in the midst of conflict? Well, Genesis 126 says that we've all been created in the image of God. So regardless of the way a person is choosing to act, their true identity is not found in what they do, but who they belong to. Right? God has created us, created us all to function like himself and to ultimately look like Jesus. And when a person fails, we have, to, we have to remember that it's because they've forgotten who God has created them to be. When somebody fails, they've forgotten who God has created them to be. Confronting someone with honor is reminding them of who God made them to be and allowing God to be just, allowing him to do the work. So often people love to play the judge. We're, we're, we're often quick to judge. We're often quick to sentence one another. And there are consequences for our sin when you were wronged. And that person will one day suffer for the consequences. But it's not you that will judge the wicked. It's not you. It's God. Confronting a follower of Jesus, however, is different than confronting a non-believer, somebody who's outside of the church. And when you confront a non-believer who is wronging you, it's wise to ask the Holy Spirit, seek wisdom, because it might be an opportunity to display Jesus to them. You might have an opportunity to give them a grace that they've never seen before, because when they've hurt somebody, when they've wronged somebody in the past, they and that person lashed out, and they were demeaned, and they were put down. But maybe it's an opportunity for you to show that person a grace that they've never experienced before. But the Bible is clear on what we should do when confronting a fellow believer, somebody within the body. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, it says this. It says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. This is an important first step. This is one that often many people skip. They don't go directly to that person and talk to that person, just the two of them. They go to their small group. They go to their other their other their their family members and they start to tell people how that person hurt them and what they did and they make this wound even bigger because those people affirm that and they go oh that oh they shouldn't have done that instead of going directly to the person 
like an honorable, an honorable person should do. They, they take it to other people. This is an important first step. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. Case closed. Good job. You did it. Verse 16, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is harsh. This is harsh, church. But it's not a green light to abruptly approach everyone who hurts our feelings, right? It's a picture here that you first give an opportunity to restore your relationship with one another before bringing someone else into it. Here's the point of all this, is that honor makes restoration the purpose of confrontation. Honor makes restoration, putting them back on their throne. Honor makes restoration the purpose of confrontation. I think oftentimes the purpose of confrontation is, I want to show them that I'm right. Do we do that? I'm going to engage this person in an argument because I want to show them how they're wrong and that I'm right and I deserve an apology. So I'm going to make them feel it. But that's not the purpose of confrontation. Honor makes restoration the purpose of confrontation. It's not wanting to be right. It's wanting to be in right relationship with one another. It's not wanting to be right. It's saying, hey, I value our relationship together. You're my brother and sister. I value our relationship more than anything else, so how can we make this right? And it's figuring that out together. We have no control over how another person acts or chooses to live, and it can be frustrating because we want to fix each other, don't we? But true change, it only comes from the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. You can't change somebody's heart. You can't change their behavior or their actions. It comes from the Holy Spirit, and we've got to get out of the way and allow the Holy Spirit to do his job. Our part is to honor and to love and to restore, to encourage. That's our part to play. The Holy Spirit convicts, and the Holy Spirit changes, and the Holy Spirit does the dirty work. That's not our job. He's in the business of restoration. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is in the business of restoration. I remember a time when I was younger, and, you know, when you're young and you're experiencing a lot of emotions, especially around 14 or 15 years old, it can be kind of confusing. But I remember, I remember this one moment with my sister, and we were in the midst of a heated battle. And we had been arguing for months and months and months, and it just feel, I just felt like I can never get along with my sister. She's always against me. We're always at odds with one another. And I remember being about 14, 15, 16. I don't remember exactly what age. And I remember thinking, this is it. If I never have a relationship with my sister, I'm fine with it. I don't need her in my life. I don't care. She's, she's difficult. I don't want to be in a relationship with her. And I don't remember exactly what happened next, but I think it might have been my mom asking me to spend some time in prayer. And it's the last thing you want to do when you're angry, right? But I just went, all I said was this. I said, God, if you're able, would you restore my relationship with my sister? And within a matter, I'm not, I'm not joking, church, within a matter of minutes, my heart was turned towards my sister. And I went to her and I said, I want us to get along. 
I don't know why we keep fighting, but if there's any way that we can work on this, let's, let's work on this together. And we hugged one another, and we, we said we were sorry, and the Lord just drew us close together. It's like, it was so evident to me, it was a little thing in my life, but it was evident to me that, that the Holy Spirit cares about restoration. It's such a little thing, a little relationship, a little argument. When I'm 14, 15, 16, it was probably over something that didn't even matter, but to me, it was the end of the world with my sister, Right? And the Holy Spirit came and fixed it in a moment. And it doesn't always work like that. In fact, it often doesn't work like that. Sometimes we have to forgive people over and over again. We have to remind ourselves of that person's worth over and over again. But the Holy Spirit loves restoration. And he's good at it. And we can trust the Lord to bring us close to people who we have become far with. Honor is not dependent on whether or not a person is worthy of honor, but whether you choose to be a person who shows honor to others. It sees the greatness in people. It restores people back to that greatness. And when you honor other people, you can utilize the gifts and the anointing and the grace that is on each other's life. And the church can become more unified when we value diversity and when we honor one another. Would you stand with me, church? I want to pray for you. I want to pray this morning for restoration in broken relationships. And for some of you, it's a relationship with a child. For some of you, it's, it's a relationship with a parent. For some of you, it's a relationship with a sibling or maybe a friend that you're just not getting along. And, and I, I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to do a work this morning in your heart. Don't worry about them. Let's focus on us in the room today. Let's, let's ask the Holy Spirit to do a work in our heart and turn our hearts toward that person and give us new ways to approach them. Give us new ways, new words, new methods to try to make contact with this person and to reach out. Some of us need to be the ones who go first. We need to outdo the other person in showing honor. Some of us need to be the first ones. And so let me pray over you. Father, I pray, just put that person in your mind. If you have somebody in your mind Put that person, that name in your mind. Father, I pray for every person here who has broken relationships and they're, they're estranged or they're, they're far from somebody that they love. God, would you fill us with compassion towards that person? Fill us with a new grace. Give us the new words. Give us new methods, new ways to show that person how much we love them. And Father, we, we thank you that we are your children and you've called us to look more and more like you. And God, that is difficult at times. We don't have the patience that you had. We don't have the compassion for people that you had, but we want it. We desire to look more and more like you. So Father, in this moment, Holy Spirit, do a miracle in our hearts. Fill our tanks. In fact, enlarge our tanks. Give us a greater, capacity, a greater capacity to love, a greater capacity for patience and compassion and, 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 and to approach people, God, who, are, who have hurt us or maybe we've hurt them. Humble us, Jesus. Give us humility in this room. We want to be trusted by you. We want to be trusted with, your, with, with, with when you honor us, Jesus, to give it back to you, to show the world Jesus. Father, thank you that you are in the business of restoration. I pray for healing over every heart in this room that has been broken. Healing in Jesus' name. We love you, God. We thank you for your goodness.
In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen, amen. amen. We love you, church. Hey, next week, I am so excited. We are starting a summer-long series called Songs of the Summer. We're going to be through the book of Psalms. We're going to read the entire book of Psalms as a church, and there's a reading plan in the lobby. You can also find the reading plan online. And we're going to start next Sunday with Psalms chapter 1. It's kind of an introductory to the entire book of Psalms, and I'm so excited about it. God bless you guys. Hopefully we'll see you next week.